0: Welcome to ASHA Voices, a podcast from the American Speech Language Hearing Association. I'm J.D. Gray. On this podcast, we talk about the issues surrounding the speech language hearing professions. Today, we'll be talking about cognitive communication disorders and the justice system. We'll meet a speech language pathologist and a retired police lieutenant working to de-escalate police encounters by teaching young adults with autism how to communicate with police officers.
1: So what we do is we have a full weekend of working with young people to basically talk about their behavior.
0: And we'll meet a juvenile forensic speech-language pathologist from Howard University. We'll discuss what she's learned about how adolescents with cognitive communication disorders enter the justice system. And she'll tell us about the work she does inside of prisons and how her students react to the program. This is Asha Voices. Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from The Informed SLP. Hundreds of research articles are published in our field every month. But which ones matter for clinical practice? The Informed SLP can show you. Learn more at theinformedslp.com ASHA. Shamika Stanford is a forensic speech-language pathologist. She works at the intersection of communication in the law and she focuses on young people whose communication disorders are misunderstood by the authorities in the June issue of the Ashley leader magazine she tells the story of a student she calls Dylan
2: Dylan's would be considered on the lower end of the spectrum uh, with autism well, he was Verbal, but not 100% able to express his wants and needs.
0: Dylan likes to keep the same schedule and he uses a plan to get from class to class around the school. Shamika says things like a disrupted schedule can create frustration in Dylan. And one day, she says, Dylan got frustrated when he was in language arts class.
2: His reaction was to, you know, ask for space or lash out, um, for lack of better words.
0: Shamika says the teacher was afraid, and officers got involved.
2: And because they could not calm him down or control him, quote-unquote. They handcuffed him and transported him to the police station where they then contacted his parents.
0: Shemega links cognitive communication disorders, or CCDs, like Dylan's, to increased risk of punishment under zero-tolerance policies in schools.
2: Zero-tolerance policies originally, as we know, was created for the Gun-Free Act in 1994 and then was a part of the No Child Left Behind Act in 2001 when they reauthorized it.
0: These see students put in detention, suspended, or expelled over their behavior.
2: When it was reauthorized, and so in addition to the zero tolerance on weapons, it included drugs and behaviors that were labeled problematic. So for instance, classroom disruption or insubordination.
0: In her article in the ASHA Leader, Shamika says more than 80% of young people affected by school zero tolerance policies had a CCD, a learning disability, or a combination. She cites a 2018 article from the Journal of Gender, Social Policy, and the Law.
2: There is a legal expectation that the school systems have to demonstrate that the charge is not a manifestation of the youth's uh, disorder. However, I haven't seen a lot of times where the speech and language pathologists take or perception or their interactional understanding of the youth's abilities was taken into account.
0: Shamika says SLPs are the front line.
2: We definitely are the front line because we are on the IEP as the individual that treats those uh, impairments that are intersecting with the criminal justice system.
0: For this first episode of of Voices, we examine how the work of SLPs intersects with the justice system. We're going to continue our conversation with Howard University's Dr. Shamika Stanford, and she'll be joined by Dr. Pamela Wiley. Pamela is the founder and CEO of the LA Speech and Language Therapy Center. Along with retired Lieutenant Stan Campbell, she runs a program training young adults with autism on how to interact with the police. It's called Spectrum Shield. The first voice you'll hear is Shamika's. I ask her about the importance of highlighting and identifying CCD-related behaviors in the context of her profession.
2: It's it's really important because we're looking at a large influx of mental health illnesses being recognized in the criminal justice system and in the prison systems. But the part that is sometimes overlooked is the number of individuals, especially youth, that are inside of these systems that have language and learning disorders. And in addition to that, what those language and learning disorders look like when they are a burden or a disadvantage for the individual as far as uh, representing or serving their presentation in courts, understanding their rights and what is and isn't okay to engage in when they're in society. And so right now, the importance is a part of looking at the mass uh, incarceration of youth, especially black and brown youth, and the disproportionate representation of youth with cognitive and communication disorders.
0: We're going to come back to the issue of race in a moment, but first I want to ask you what are some examples of CCD-related behaviors that could be misinterpreted?
2: So, for example, there are a number of youth that have been uh, called into the law enforcement centers, institutions, the correctional institutions, related to things like the inability to problem solve. And so their first reaction or knee-jerk response to situations have resulted in uh, being charged with crimes, status offenses zero tolerance infractions because they weren't able to process the entire impact of what they resulted in doing. And and so some of those things look like, you know, lashing out, being frustrated because they can't properly communicate what they want to say and how they want to say it. And so it comes out in an area of frustration, anxiety, and tension that in others, looks like just behavioral difficulties and defiance, where it actually may be related to the cognitive and communication disorders.
0: Dr. Pamela Wiley, I know this is something that you can speak to. Uh, so now seems like a good time for you to tell us about Spectrum Shield. I understand Spectrum Shield is a weekend program, teaches young adults with autism how to communicate with the police, for example, what to do during a traffic stop. What would we see if we were there for Spectrum Shield?
1: Basically, what we do is exactly what Dr. Stanford talked about, is working on their behaviors. Auditory processing will cause these kids a disability or or an inability to follow commands. Some of the kids also will have sensory challenges, which means loud voices, yelling commands, bright lights, sirens, all of those things can kind of cause them to shut down or respond inappropriately, which to law enforcement would look like noncompliance. And so what we do is we have a full weekend of working with young people to basically talk about their behavior. We also look at theory of mind, which is how might the police officer feel when you do XYZ. So getting them to see their behavior through the eyes of the police. But the other piece that I think that's important is that we also work with the law enforcement and when we collect data from law enforcement officers, they all say that they had some form of training, but after having this weekend-long experience with the kids, they understand autism a lot more. So it's kind of, you know, we need to train our kids, but we also need to train law enforcement, and they're very receptive to it.
0: Are there any specific moments or parts of the weekend that you would want to highlight? When we do the, the traffic stops,
1: I think that's really important because what we do is we actually simulate the full situation. So we have a police car behind. We have two kids that have already been prepped on how to respond to law enforcement. Now we actually put it into effect. And so what we see is despite the fact that we've prepped them, they've had the time with law enforcement. Some of the kids, you just saw breakdown, especially when we did good cop, bad cop. So there's one scene where Lieutenant Stan and another officer are surrounding the car, barking orders from both sides to the kids. So we saw breakdowns. So we saw kids that um, would respond to the officer on the opposite side, or kids that began to fidget. And so it was really good because we videotape every aspect of, of the weekend and then we let the kids see themselves. So they were kind of surprised at themselves, or some of them would say, I was so afraid. And I began to fidget. And then the law enforcement officer would say, but when you go for your, you fidget with your pants, that's where bad guys keep a gun. So you got to be careful with that. So it really gave the kids opportunities to come up with personal goals for themselves.
0: Dr. Wiley, uh, if you could talk a little bit about what changes you've seen from the participants from the beginning of the weekend to the end.
1: One of the things that we do very early on with the, the kids when they arrive is we talk about autism. And what you see is as these kids become older and more independent, they want to shed that autism diagnosis. They just want to be a typical kid. So we talk to them about autism, but also the importance of possibly carrying an autism disclosure card. And probably 90% of the kids when we start will say, no, I'm good. I don't want a card. And we talk about the card relative to the fact that if you at least had something to present to law enforcement, they might respond differently to you. They may not see you necessarily as a bad guy when you're unable to perform certain tasks, for example. So we ask the kids if, if they're interested after we make this compassionate plea, and then they say, um, no, I'm good. On Sunday, when we take the survey again, just about 90, 95%, just about everybody says, I'm willing to carry this card. And that's really important for their safety. And all the law enforcement officers in giving us feedback say, if they showed me this card, I wouldn't be as hard on them. I wouldn't be as quick to think that they're a bad guy getting ready to do something. I would respond differently to them.
0: So that's huge. Shamika, I want to go to an independent study that you teach at Howard, and it's called Inside Out as a part of it, I understand you take graduate students into the prisons. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the program and how it got started.
2: So Inside Out was started at Temple University in conjunction with an incarcerated man by a woman named Lori Pompa. And Inside Out is a program where we take students to go inside of carceral spaces and learn in conjunction with incarcerated men and women. I was one of the first to modify the training to address a clinical standpoint to uh, what Inside Out should do. And so on the flip side of what Dr. Wiley and Mr. Campbell does, the class focuses on training and desensitizing the professionals. So for instance, when we're looking at men and women who are incarcerated or being placed at risk for incarceration, there's not a lot of times where they have the opportunity to pull out a disclosure card because we know that there are instances where officers uh, react immediately from reaching. And so this training is on the other side of giving them the awareness of what communication disorders look like because it does not have a face. And so when there is not the capacity for the individual to, to remember the steps that a program like Dr. Wiley's and Mr. Campbell's to recall those steps because you may have memory deficits or executive functioning skills, what the professionals need to know.
0: Tell me about the graduate students' experience.
2: So the, the students have reflected that the program has been life-changing for them, that it has uh, changed the their outlook on what They are able to do what their role is on the front line of social justice and juvenile justice. A lot of what they've gotten was from the actual interaction with the incarcerated men and women. And so for Inside Out, it's not designed like a typical classroom. The students on both sides, inside and outside, they kind of teach themselves. So as the facilitator, I present a topic and kind of lay the groundwork and I let the group process run for itself. And so it's not a Socratic method. And so a lot of times the incarcerated men and women are teaching the Howard outside students, the things that they're not aware of because they were not in that space or haven't been exposed to the under-resourced or injustice experiences that the incarcerated men and women have. And so they leave there with a a life-changing experience and feeling about what they want to do next in their lives and careers.
0: Has it led to anything in their careers?
2: Yes. So right now, I have two doctoral students who are actually doing research in the area of social justice and juvenile justice. I have two master's students who are doing um, collecting data right now in the court systems related to some information around um, the disconnect and disparities in the courts. Um, I graduated seven master's students last year that completed thesis focused on the research in social justice and juvenile justice. And a few of them are actually returning to doctorate programs. Um, and so it definitely is becoming a phenomenal shift um, to us be recognizing that we are on the front line and one of the first fields that can provide intervention to reduce the process of juvenile injustice. And so, yes, it, it has made a big difference in their lives.
0: It must be very rewarding to see your work continued on in that way.
2: It definitely is. It's, it's, it's exciting. And the goal is to pour into them because I can't take it with me. Um, and so to make sure that it continues to live on, it's that free sustainability. So it is definitely rewarding.
0: Coming up, we'll hear more from our panelists, Dr. Pamela Wiley and Dr. Shamika Stanford. And later, we'll hear from Dr. Wiley's Spectrum Shield collaborator, retired Lieutenant Stan Campbell. This is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the Informed SLP. Great clinicians need great scientific research to inform their practice. But how can we know the research with so many articles and so little time? The Informed SLP makes it easy. Each month, their team of scientists and clinicians find the research for you. They explain it without the jargon, without the burden, just for SLPs, so you can spend less time reading and more time treating. Visit theinformedslp.com ASHA. We're going to return to our conversation with Dr. Shamika Stanford, a forensic SLP from Howard University, and Dr. Pamela Wiley the founder and CEO of the LA Speech and Language Therapy Center. Earlier in this episode, I mentioned that we would be talking about how race fits into this conversation. And in this half, we begin by talking about minority recruitment into the field of speech-language pathology.
2: I think more minority recruitment with the explicit training in this area it could improve things. I think that regardless of the race it is the lack of understanding of what our youth especially black and black and brown youth go through that is the the gap that is present. Um you know, Asha put into place um the the need that all programs are to train on cultural competence, but there also needs to be an understanding that we also need to understand juvenile justice and social justice, because these youth, whether they are in the incarcerated spaces or not, they start in the school systems, most of them. Um, and so the front line, the early intervention for keeping them out of the prisons is where the necessity happens. So yes, we definitely need more um, individuals that are culturally diverse, but we also just need the culturally diverse training of all um, speech and language pathologists coming in future and present.
1: Mm -hmm. I I would also say that um, our profession needs to do a better job of talking about the various professional opportunities available to us, because unless it's changed, um, typically when you're in the universities, they route you to the public schools and that's probably the greatest need. But for example, you being a forensic SLP, we need more people like you. Those of us in private practice that can really um, have a greater reach. We need more of us. So I think there's also a need for um, African-American speech pathologists. Um, and that's not to say, you know, we're the only ones that can work with our kids. But I think that cultural identification makes a difference because I have a very culturally diverse staff. And I see that my African-American parents seem to feel more comfortable, or a little more forthcoming with with our African-American therapists. Uh, and I've had other groups come and say, I'm so happy that you have, for example, uh, a Japanese therapist because they understand our culture. So we can train people in terms of cultural awareness, but actually to to be a part of a culture is even better. So I would think we need more African-American SLPs.
2: I think you're you're absolutely right, Dr. Wally. And that one of the things that makes Howard unique is that they have the tracks, mm-hmm. and so they have you know education track, medical track, uh, technology track, bilingual track. But we also have a staple mandatory class where all students before they graduate have to learn about private practice. Oh wow! Um, and so I, I th- it 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 is one that is very unique to the process of understanding what is needed out in the Mm -hmm. field. But I think that also um, we do definitely need to start the discussion on incorporating the understanding of social Mm -hmm. justice and juvenile justice into our conversations. And so if you're having a school-age language class, you can't talk about school-age language and school-age language disorders without bringing up some understanding of the school to confinement pipeline, because a lot of your kids may... um, end up there without the proper understanding from the Mm -hmm. professional. And I think that in the school systems, the biggest thing that they're up against is the paperwork and they have so much paperwork and so much caseload things that the, once again, the black and Brown youth that are, being placed at risk for the school to confinement pipeline are lost in the in Absolutely. the system. And it continues to be a cyclical process because we don't have a specialized focus mm-hmm. or understanding on mm-hmm. that. So again, yes, we definitely do need ones that come in culturally diverse and wanting to be specifically trained yes. in this yes. area so that they can specifically address Absolutely. it.
0: All right. If you could send one message to other speech language pathologists, what would that be?
2: For me, it would be um, right now, you know, I think that the term, the buzz term or my professional term of being a juvenile forensic speech and language pathologist has become a question of how do I become one? And I think that my message is to put me out of business as a juvenile forensic SLP. The goal isn't to need a juvenile forensic SLP because that means that we did not get them before they entered The system. And so the message is to make sure that your uh, therapy, your intervention, and your assessment is intentional and that you recognize what the youth needs to become successful in all aspects of their lives um, and to get them before they become on track to not being able to return as a functional citizens to society, that, that the goal is not to get them when they're in the system, it is to get them before they get to the system.
1: You've said a mouthful. I think the only thing that I could, could add to that, um, I would think in terms of students, to think about the many opportunities that, and career paths that we can take in our profession to find something where there's a need um, and to find your passion, because we have a great profession with a lot of opportunities. But again, some of it just requires you taking that step. So I would just encourage them to find their profession and, and make a difference. And making a difference means expanding your reach, not just work with the child. You work with the child. You work with the family. If you strengthen a family, you strengthen a community. Strengthen the community. Ultimately, society grows. So it's a, a an effect that, that impacts a greater reach than just the kids that we work with.
0: Thank you both. Uh, I have one more question before we leave, which is uh, one thing I don't want to overlook in this conversation is hearing loss. And I'm wondering if you could, we've talked about some of the challenges autism and other cognitive communication disorders can create, but do you have anything to say about some of the similar difficulties that may be facing people who are deaf or hard of hearing? Um, For hearing loss, they
2: have a a sometimes they are even more marginalized within this area than we care to speak about um, because they have another disadvantage up against them. So there is a significant number of individuals who are in um, incarcerated spaces, or are engaging in police, or experiencing police brutality because of the lack of understanding of a hearing impairment, um, and so they're they're not getting interpreters. There's not many people who are sign language or understand sign language or sign language certified to assist them. So they have a, a, an additional strike and disadvantage against them. That we definitely need more audiologists to be a part of this discussion of addressing their needs and understanding the disproportionate representation disparity that they experience in this system.
0: I want to thank our guests today, Dr. Shamika Stanford from Howard University and Dr. Pamela Wiley, CEO of the LA Speech and Language Therapy Center. If you want to learn more about Shamika's work with CSD in the justice system or Dr. Pamela Wiley's work with Spectrum Shield, Look for related articles on the ASHA Leaders website. You can also find links to research and an article on the difficulties testifying with aphasia. That's all at leader.pubs.asha.org. Thank you, everyone, for being a part of the conversation today.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: In this conversation, we talked about the importance of increased cultural competence among speech-language hearing professionals, and the need for and benefits of greater diversity in the discipline. I want to take a quick moment to shine a spotlight on ASHA's own Office of Multicultural Affairs. OMA is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. If you want to read more about the many ways OMA helps members address culture and language and diversity among professionals and those with communication disorders or differences, visit asha.org and search for multicultural.
3: Hey, get your hands up. Hands up right now. Hey, keep your hands on the steering wheel. No one told you to move. Your vehicle?
0: What you just heard comes from a video about Spectrum Shield. It was shared on the LA Speech and Language Therapy Center's YouTube channel. In it, you can see a montage of mock police encounters. In each clip, two young adults are parked on a ranch as they sit in an SUV. Officers walk up to the vehicle and give commands as a part of the simulation. One of those officers is Stan Campbell. Retired Lieutenant Stan Campbell is the founder of DOPE, which stands for De-Escalating Officer Patrol Encounters. He says that in 2016, after participating in a panel discussion with Dr. Wiley, she pulled him aside and they came up with Spectrum Shield. I recently caught up with Stan. At the time of this recording, he very recently completed his third Spectrum Shield workshop. I asked Stan, why this training is important from an officer's perspective.
3: From an officer's perspective, and because I've been in the field of training for so many years, I've identified that uh, the majority of the agencies across the nation, which there's about 17,000 agencies across the nation when it comes down to police forces, they have limited knowledge of how to service someone on the spectrum or a young person with autism or anyone at all. Um, most don't know they have introductory classes on on autism, but they've never been around the kids to really truly understand that there's many faces of autism, and um, and something like this is needed because we also invite police in so that they can interact with the kids um, through the scenarios and also uh, through sit down and you know uh, question and answer sessions where you know the young man can ask them anything they want about you know, what they've always wanted to learn about police officers. And then that way the the police themselves they get a chance to interact with them, you know, uh, you know, take note of any, you know, challenges, you know, even in communication. So do it in a way in a sterile environment so that things are not as heightened and there's not an escalation of, of the communication. So it, it works out for both.
0: I'm wondering if you could take us to into a specific simulation or something from the weekend and let us know what that would have looked like if we were there, like in depth, set the scene for us. What, what would we see?
3: We begin with me. I stand before them, you know, after they have a, built a, a short relationship with me and a trust, we talk about, you know, some of the things that they have seen. I, I try to find out who has, you know, seen, you know, uh, videos of brutality Videos involving the shooting death of others. I mean, it's a raw class. And what I mean by that is our young men, they start from 18. And this particular class, the oldest one was 31. And we made sure that they were middle of the spectrum to high functioning. And, you know, so that they can actually communicate what I needed them to communicate and they would accept things that I had to say so that, you know, there was an exchange and we could be honest with one another. We start there and then I, I give my story. I talk about how I, too, uh, when I was a young man, was pulled over by the police. And then I, I share that even as a policeman, I've been pulled over 10 times, you know, uh, in, in a couple of different states by police. We really, really push the fact that officers are human and make it so that things that they might feel in help of fear and anxiety, You know, I explain how, you know, officers too are watching things on social media, watching officers get hurt on traffic stops. And while, you know, uh, they are, you know, on their computers and phones watching the same, when we meet, both of us are anxious and fearful of each other. So it's a very unique encounter in which it starts off with both sides being afraid. And I explain how important it is for them knowing that the officers are afraid and the officers are carrying weapons for them to really control their movements because, you know, they learned and I've, I've taught them that officers, you know, pay more attention to what you do versus what you say. It's really awesome in the way that we we kind of break it down for them.
0: We heard earlier a simulation of a traffic stop and you're featured in that video. And I was wondering if you yes. could kind of take us through that as an example. What kind of actions were being displayed and how were both sides reacting.
3: We run up through two scenarios. one is an aggressive traffic stop in which the officer sees the movements either it be them stemming from you know being anxious or just movements that you know for them being nervous that they normally make that the officer sees as you know suspicious or even possibly, dangerous in that situation. We start them off because we really want to get a true uh, feel for what they would do if an officer did yell at them a point a training weapon at them. And in this particular case we use training weapons, of course, for safety. But, you know, so when we yell at them and, and it causes each one of them to do and to fall back into whatever their their particular emergency tick might be, or the trigger, you know, and their behavior, their individualized behaviors. And then we're able to look at it, explain to them what they're doing. Cause you know, half the time they don't know, you know, that they're doing it and then explain how it would either make the officer feel uneasy, unsafe, or feel that that person is not being truthful in their communication. So that's one of the things that we actually do. And you know, and I have to give props to Dr. Wiley. Initially, and when I normally teach, I would teach the the passive version version of the stop, the routine stop first, and then I would teach the aggressive stop. Uh, but in this particular case, it works out better just doing the opposite, you know, so that we can actually get the raw emotions from the kids, and then we end it with something that's routine or passive.
0: Overall, this is the third training you said. Are so you not training?
3: Yeah, yes, sir. I'm absolutely uh, ecstatic with what we've gone through. It's been about 34 kids, I believe, that we put through the, the training. And we're looking to to do, I've talked to the doctor about this, and we're looking to do a a reunion, a Spectrum Shield reunion on Autism Month next year in 2020, in which we bring all 30, 34 kids back and we put them through a refresher. Because one of the things that we found is that you know, this is a collective. It takes a village to keep these kids safe. So it's it's a, a four pronged attack. You have the child, you have the the professional, you know, with Dr. Wiley and her team, you have law enforcement, and you have the parents. And, you know, just to make sure that everyone's doing their job and that it's still fresh in the kids' minds, we're gonna bring them all back and put them through another course with all of the, the young men being there at the same time.
0: Retired Lieutenant Stan Campbell, he's the founder of DOPE, de-escalating officer patrol encounters and trains young adults with autism on how to communicate with law enforcement as a part of a program called Spectrum Shield. We want to hear from you. Do you have a story about how your work intersects with the justice system? Tell us what you're doing to help keep your clients from being misunderstood by the authorities What are some challenges and solutions you see? Give us your feedback, email us at podcast at asha.org, or leave us a voicemail message at 301-296-5804. You can find that number on our website too. We might include your comment in the next episode. Support for Asha Voices comes from the Informed SLP. Knowing our field's research means knowing the right places to look for it. Take a look at the Informed SLP. They find our field's best clinical research for you. Learn more at theinformedslp.com slash ASHA. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. Production assistance comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. We'll be back in two weeks with a conversation about big changes to service delivery and reimbursement in skilled nursing facilities. What will the new patient-driven payment model, or PDPM, mean for speech-language pathologists in SNFs?
1: A lot of SLPs who are suffering
2: with maybe some symptoms of burnout in SNFs, a lot of questions about, oh, I just can't keep it up. I think that PDPM is gonna be refreshing in a sense.
0: That's next time on ASHA Voices.